0: Lane Staley, badass motherfucker and frontman for the Seattle-based grunge rock band Alice in Chains, was a soft-spoken, creative soul that was taken by addiction on April 5th, 2002. It was a heart-wrenching day for all of us that adored his music. It's a day that will forever be remembered because that, that was the day the music died. Lane Staley was born Lane Rutherford Staley in Kirkland, Washington on August 22, 1967. He did not like his middle name, Rutherford, uh, which you can probably tell why, and he legally changed his middle name to Thomas because he was a huge fan of Motley Crue drummer Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee! By the time he was three, he already joined a rhythm band in Bellevue and his parents divorced when he was only seven years old. He was raised by his mother and stepfather, and he was raised as a Christian scientific, but always spoke out against religion as an adult. He also always knew, even as a kid, that he wanted to sing. At the age of nine, he wrote in his Dr. Seuss's book, All About Me, that he wanted to be a singer. That's pretty awesome. He learned about music through his parents' collection, listening at an early age to Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. Black Sabbath, dear anyway. Other favorite bands include Hard Rock, and metal bands like the Stooges, Anthrax, anthrax, Judas Priest, Saxon, Rainbow, Merciful Fate, Twisted Sister, Van Halen, and Industrial New Wave Acts such as Ministry, The Lords of the New Church, and Skinny Puppy. He also cited Prince and David Bowie as two of his biggest idols. Lane Staley started playing drums when he was only 12 years old, and he was the drummer in a number of glam bands in his early teens. Man, I wish I could see some of that footage. In 1984, Staley joined a group of Shorewood High School students and called themselves Sleaze. That's S-L-E-Z-E. That's a pretty amazing name. In 1985, Staley and his band Sleaze made a cameo in Father Rock, a low-budget movie from Seattle's Public Access Channel. Yeah, look at him, kicking ass. In 1986, Slees morphed into the one and only Alice in Chains a band which Staley said used to dress in drag and played speed metal. <laughs> God, I want to see that. The idea for the name change came during a conversation between Bacalus and Russ Klott, the lead singer of Slaughterhouse-Five. They were talking about you know backstage passes, and one of the passes read, quote, Welcome to Wonderland. They started talking about the reference to Alice in Wonderland when Klatt said, What about Alice in Chains? Put her in bondage and stuff like that. Bacalus thought it was a cool name and raised it with his sleaze bandmates, and everyone agreed. But while they decided on going with Alice in Chains, they were concer- They had concerns about the reference to female bondage. So they cleverly decided to spell it differently, as Alice in Chains, the letter in chains, which I'm sure you've all probably seen, to calm any parental concerns. As for Staley's mother, Nancy, she was never happy with the name of their group. <laughs> oh, Mom. The newly renamed band would do gigs around Seattle, playing Slayer and Armored Saint covers. And it was at a party in Seattle that Staley met guitarist, the one and only Jerry motherfucking Cantrell. So Staley met uh, Jerry Cantrell in Seattle, like we say here, in August of 1987. A few months before that, Cantrell saw a concert of Staley's band in his hometown at the Tacoma Little Theater. Cantrell was impressed by Staley's voice, of course. Cantrell was homeless after being kicked out of his family's home, and so Staley invited him to come and stay with him at the rehearsal studio um, music bank. The two struggling musicians became roommates and instant friends. Soon after, Alice in Chains disbanded, and Staley moved on, joining a funk band as their guitarist. That's fucking rad. I had no idea about that. Cantrell's own band, Diamond Lie, broke up too, and he wanted to form a new band. This was the catalyst for the formation of what we know as Alice in Chains. That's N, I N, not the letter N. For those keeping track, Staley uh, connected um, Cantrell with drummer Sean Kinney, and the two would uh, be the future founding members of Alice in Chains. Sean Kinney, amazing fucking drummer. Cantrell mentioned to Kinney he needed a uh, bass player, and Kinney brought his brother, or his girlfriend's brother, Mike. Uh, start into the mix. The three began jamming but were missing that one major piece. Of course, the singer. At that time, Staley was playing guitar for his funk band and asked Cantrell to join as a sideman. Cantrell agreed on one condition that Staley joins his own band too. At the time, his band with Kenny and Starr was incomplete and nameless. They wanted to get Staley on board as the lead singer, but he wasn't showing any interest at first. So the guys started auditioning some really bad lead singers in front of Staley on purpose, which only made him angry. The final straw for Staley came when they went so far as to audition a male stripper in front of him. After that, he agreed to join their band. <laughs> oh, God, it's awesome. Quote, I knew that voice was the guy I wanted to be playing with. It sounded like it came out of a 350-pound biker rather than skinny little lane. I considered his voice to be my voice. Quote, that's how Jerry Cantrell described it. Staley's funk group broke up anyway, and by 1987, he joined Cantrell's band full-time. The band had gone through some rather unwholesome names, like Fuck, yes, that's an actual, they actually went by Fuck, F-U-C-K, and Diamond Lie, which was the name of Cantrell's former band, as we mentioned. They started to get attention in the Seattle area, and at first, they took the name of Staley's previous band, Alice in Chains. Again, that's n the letter N. They then renamed themselves to Alice in I.N. Chains after Staley got permission from his former bandmates to use the band name. Randy Hauser, a local promoter, became aware of Alice and Chains at one of their concerts and offered them to pay for demo recordings. But as luck would have it, one day before the band was scheduled to record at the Music Bank studio in Washington, the cops shut down the studio during what would become the biggest cannabis raid in the history of the state. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome gotta love that weed the treehouse uh, tapes and uh, getting signed here their final demo was completed in 1988 and they named it quote the treehouse tapes the demo made its way to the music managers uh kelly curtis and susan silver who managed soundgarden at the time who then passed it on to columbia records as nick Turzo. well nick Turzo signed them to a deal in 1989 and they began working on an album Alice Chains released their debut album, Facelift, in 1990, creating the band's signature style. Their sing, uh, second single, Man in a Box, written by Staley, became a huge hit. And I can remember hearing that song for the very first time. It was on MTV, back when they played music videos and actual music. And I heard that song, and it absolutely blew me away. I think I was probably 14 or 15 years old, and it was fan-fucking-tastic. Uh, the album certified double platinum for sales of 2 million copies in the United States alone. And then the band embarked on their very first tour, lasting for two years. In 1992, Alice in Chains released Dirt, which was a critically acclaimed album and their most successful. Also in 1992, the band had a cameo in the quintessential 90s film Singles. And if you haven't seen Singles, you gotta go check it out. During the Dirt Tour in Brazil in 1993, joined by Seattle's very own Nirvana, Staley saved Mike Starr's life after he overdosed. Starr later admitted that Staley saved his life after both Staley and Kurt Cobain gave him shots of heroin on one night. Oh boy, you fucking assholes. Anyway, Starr collapsed, but Staley quickly revived him by giving him CPR. He recalled waking up to Staley, who was hysterically crying, which I could only... go well, first of all, this is your dude... Second of all, like, you pretty much just fucking killed him. Yeah, I could see you being a little upset about that. Staley, come on, Lane. During the early 1990s, Staley checked into several different rehab programs, but he never stayed clean for too long. There was even a point when the other Alice in Chains members flew to Los Angeles for weekly therapy at Staley's rehab. During the Dirt Tour, the band manager, Susan Silver, hired bodyguards to keep people away from Staley who might try to pass drugs onto him but despite their efforts, he relapsed on tour. Then when news came of Kurt Cobain's death in April of 1994, it managed to scare Staley into temporary sobriety, but that too didn't last for too long. In 1994, their second EP, Jar of Flies, came out and debuted at number one. By then, the band members were really noticing Staley's deteriorating condition and chose not to tour for the new album. Mike McCready, Pearl Jam's lead guitarist, also tried to help um, Lane Staley out by inviting him to his side project Mad Season, which is fucking amazing if you guys get a chance to check that out. McCready hoped that playing music with sober musicians might actually encourage him. Cantrell had been writing almost all of the music and lyrics for the band, but as time went on, Staley contributed too. Staley wrote music and lyrics for Hate to Feel, Angry Chair, and Head Creeps. In October of 1996, um, for bad, Staley's former fiance, um yeah, she unfortunately passed away of a drug overdose. After this happened, Staley was placed on a 24 hour suicide watch. Mark Lanigan from Screaming Trees told Rolling Stone in 2002 that, quote, he never recovered from Marie's death. After that, I don't think he wanted to go on, end quote. Due to Staley's addiction, side projects, and an overall lack of passion, Alison Chains was suffering and went on kind of a hiatus. Reports of Staley's addiction started to get widespread media attention, and a lot of it was simply because people were noticing his physical deterioration for prolonged heroin use. Alice in Chains managed to continue on, though, and regrouped to record an album called Tripod in 1995. The album reached the top of the charts and went double platinum. Staley actually wrote most of the songs, and many considered the album to be his greatest lyrical contribution to the band catalog. Things seemed to be getting better, but after the release of the home video, The Nona Tapes, things started to slide again. The band was unable to complete the tours they had planned after the album's release. When they were asked about the frustration of not touring, Cantrell gave some insight into how Staley's addictions caused tensions in the band and how well they actually dealt with it. Cantrell said it was, quote, very frustrating, but we stuck it out. We rode the good times together and we stuck together through the hard times, end quote. Staley told Rolling Stone in 1996 that, quote, drugs worked for me for years and now they're turning against me. Now I'm walking through hell and this sucks. I didn't want my fans to think that heroin was cool, end quote. He said that fans came up to him and gave him the thumbs up, telling him, hey, they're high, quote, that's exactly what I didn't want to happen, end quote. One of Staley's last shows with Allison Chains was their MTV Unplugged performance, On April 10th, 1996 in New York. And by the way, fucking amazing album. Both Moody and I agree that it is tremendous. If you guys have not heard that, go into iTunes or wherever you guys listen to music and just get that. And if you have heard it, then you probably know how fucking amazing it is. Staley's last ever performance was on July 3rd, 1996 in Kansas City, Missouri when Alice Chains was touring with Kiss, the one and only Kiss. I want to rock and roll all night. Anyway, the period between 1997 and 2002 could be described as his final spiraling years. April of 1997, Staley bought himself a 1,500-square-foot, three-bedroom condominium for $262,000 in Seattle's University District. It would be the place he called home for the last few years of his life and the spot where his body would eventually be found. After a while, Allison Chains producer, Toby Wright, set up a home recording studio for Staley. Staley felt the need to do some of his own solo work, and that was where he could do it. By 1998, rumors started swirling around that Staley rarely left his apartment, that he contracted gangrene, and that he lost the ability to ingest food but Cantrell said that the members of Alice in Chains regularly hung out at Staley's home. In October of that year, Staley reemerged to make two tracks with Alice in Chains, Get Bored Again, and Died. In October of 1998 was when Lane Staley made his final public appearance on the 31st. He attended a solo concert by Jerry Cantrell in Seattle. Cantrell invited Staley to sing with him on stage, but the singer was in no mood. A photo taken of Staley backstage at the show ended up being one of the last photos ever taken of Lane Staley. Reports of Staley's deterioration and his uh, horrible condition continued on and on. Producer Dave Jordan said Staley weighed 80 pounds and was white as a ghost, end quote. While Contrell refused to comment on the singer's appearance, band manager Susan Silver said she hadn't seen him since, quote, last year. His physical appearance got worse than before, He lost several teeth, he was sickly pale, and he was emaciated. The ones closest to him repeatedly tried to get him into rehab, but Staley was at the point of no return. But according to his friends, not hearing from him for weeks was pretty common. From 1999 to 2002, Staley sunk deeper and deeper into a funk that he would never get himself out of. He rarely left his condo, and very little is known about the details of his life during this period. Staley's mother told the Seattle Times in 2007 that despite his isolation, the love from his family and friends never dwindled. They would fill his answering machine and mailbox with messages and letters. His mother said she saw her son on Thanksgiving of 2001 and again on Valentine's Day of 2002 when he visited his sister's newborn baby, but that was the last time his mother ever saw him. Sean Kenny commented on Staley's final year saying, quote, It got to a point where he'd keep himself so locked up, both physically and emotionally, I kept trying to make contact. Three times a week, like clockwork, I'd call him, but he'd never answer. Even if you can get in his building, he wasn't going to open the door. You couldn't just kick the door in and grab him. Though there were so many times I thought about doing that. End quote. By April of 2002, Staley was no longer making contact with anyone. Not his friends, family, the band. No one. On April 19th, 2002, Staley's accountants contacted Susan Silver, uh, who by then was his former manager, and informed her that no withdrawals had been made from the singer's account in the last two weeks. Silver then called Staley's mother, Nancy, who then called 911 to say that she, too, hadn't heard from him in about two weeks. The police went with Nancy and her ex-husband, Jim Elmer, to Staley's home. The 6-foot, 34-year-old weighed only 86 pounds when his body was discovered. By the time he was found, his body was already partially decomposed to the point where medical examiners had to identify his body by comparing comparing dental records. The autopsy revealed that Staley died two weeks before his body was even found, on April fifth, two 2002, the same day Kurt Cobain died eight years prior. The autopsy also concluded that Staley's death was from a mixture of heroin and cocaine, commonly known as a speedball. His death was also classified as accidental. Nancy revealed that two days before his body was found, she went to Staley's home to let him know about the death of Dimri Parrots, his ex-fiancé's brother, but no one came to the door. She had no idea that he was in there. There was some male sitting on the floor next to his door, and Nancy heard his cat meow, which she said alerted her because his cat had never done that before. Two days later, she found her son dead. An informal memorial was held for Lane Staley on April 20th, 2002, at the Seattle Center, where at least 100 fans and friends attended, including Allison in Chain's bandmates Cantrell, star Inez, and Kenny, and Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. Staley's body was cremated, and his ashes are his ashes are in a box in his mother's possession. At the funeral, Chris Cornell, along with Hearts Anne and Nancy Wilson, sang a version of the Rolling Stones' "Wild Horses." They also performed "Sand." by the lovemongers. Jerry Cantrell's next solo album, Degradation Trip, was released two months after Staley's death and dedicated to his memory. Soon after Staley's death, his parents, Nancy and Phil, started getting donations from fans all over the world. The two worked with Seattle's Therapeutic Health Services Clinic to establish the Lane Staley Memorial Fund to help heroin addiction and their families in the Seattle music community. uh, Allison Chains, and his bandmates, they released a statement saying, quote, mostly, we were feeling heartbroken over the death of our beautiful friend. He was a sweet man with a keen sense of humor and a deep sense of humanity. He was an amazing musician, an inspiration, and a comfort to so many. We love you, Lane, dearly, and we will miss you endlessly. Lane Staley, to me, was an absolute fucking beast of a front man and a singer, and an inspiration when I was growing up. I used to sit there and watch him perform, and his voice was just absolutely mesmerizing to me. The harmonies that he and Jerry Control could actually conjure up was absolutely baffling to me. This gentleman, unfortunately, got consumed by something that consumes so many. And it's horrible that somebody so talented could just ruin their lives so quickly. But, unfortunately, I guess that's what happens. So, that was Lane Staley, and this has been Episode 1 of The Day The Music Died. The Day the Music Died was researched and written by Adam Moody, produced and voiced by Jonathan Sayer. Information was taken and compiled from several sources including but not limited to an article from musicaholics.com, a 2013 article from bravewords.com, Alison Chains, The Untold Story by Thomas Doon, a 2013 article from Guitar World with Jerry Cantrell, and several other articles found from various guitar publications. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Soon, I hope. The Midnight Train Podcast Patreon producers will get access to these episodes as well as other awesome bonus material. So sign up at patreon.com forward slash The Midnight Train Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed our debut episode and you continue to listen as episodes are released. Stay safe out there, folks, and uh, keep on rocking.